You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. I hope you guys made it nice and warm. My sweater game's about run out now, so we need the warm weather to come back. I only have like three sweaters, so use them all. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, chapter 5. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So we will be doing that this morning, looking at four short verses. I told a story a couple years back that I heard Tom Nelson, pastor in, in Texas, tell, and, uh, and it's fitting for this passage. So there were, the last century, there was a, a bank robber in Mexico named Jorge Rodriguez, who uh, was just ravaging banks in those time, the Old West, and, uh, and the Texas Rangers put a whole unit on him to find him and try to catch him, and so they had finally cornered him at his hometown. They kind of stayed at a distance and he didn't know that they were there and he went in and relaxed and had, uh, you know, kind of intermingled with the folks and then went to his favorite cantina and one of the Texas Rangers uh, got the drop on him while he's in the cantina and he held a gun to him. He said, Jorge Rodriguez, I know who you are. You're going to repay all the money you stole from all those banks. And there was a problem. Jorge Rodriguez didn't speak English. Only spoke Spanish. And so uh, a young boy was there and came up and said, I can translate for you. He said, okay, translate and tell them what I said. And so uh, the little boy translated to Jorge Rodriguez and there was a solemn look on his face. Um, and, he, uh, and, and Jorge Rodriguez said something back to him in Spanish. And the little boy translated back to the uh, Texas Ranger and said, where did he say the money was? And he said, uh, Jorge said, uh, if you go five, go to this well in the town, face north and five rocks down, you pull the rock out and there will be all the money and I'll repay all the money that I stole. And so the little boy translates back to the Texas Ranger in these words, my name is Jorge Rodriguez and I'm ready to die. <laughs> there, there's some truth to that story of what's going on in this narrative today where there's the powers that be are, are taking something and translating it and twisting it to mean what they want it to mean. And they are misinterpreting and they are misapplying and they are corrupting what was said. Uh, and the problem is that the Lord Jesus shows up and starts teaching with authority that they've never seen before uh, in a way that they've never seen before and the powers that be don't like it. And so what do they start doing? They start attacking from the beginning. You contradict the Bible. You contradict the Old Testament. You're against Moses. You don't keep the rules. You don't do these things. And so what we're going to see today is Jesus is going to, in essence, get ahead of those accusations and defend uh, his position on the law, on the Old Testament, on what Scripture says. And in doing so, we get a glimpse into what the Lord Jesus' view on the Scriptures are. How does Jesus view the Old Testament? How does he see uh, uh, their understanding? And what is the point of the law? And what is the point of Moses and the prophets? He's going to explain that to us so that we get to see what the Lord Jesus' view of the scriptures are. And this is why it's significant. If you are his follower, if you identify as a Christian, then however he viewed the scripture, that's how we view the scripture, right? Because we are following him because there's all sorts of talk even in churches well we're not under law we're under grace and and Jesus came to replace the Old Testament and rip it up and do do something new and and you hear the accusations you Christians are so so hypocritical which is partially true because we're sinners but the idea that well you know you say this is wrong 
because it's in the Bible. But then over here, you're eating shrimp cocktail. And over here, you're eating barbecue and you're trimming your hair and you're wearing polyester blends. That's in there too. Why do you take some of these things and you don't take other these things? And so Jesus's answer are gonna give us uh, some of the ideas of what do we do with those things? How do we handle those, those uh, accusations, so to speak? And how do we view not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament? What is the point? That's what he's gonna answer for us today in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. We got four little verses and he's gonna give us, I wanna highlight three things. Three things that Jesus views the scripture. How does Jesus view the scripture? Because uh, again, if he's our Lord and master, then that's how we are gonna view it. So let me read these, just these verses real quickly to us and then we'll kind of unpack them. Starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Four quick verses. Right? And, here, and just a little backdrop information for you. So if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know the antagonists in the, in the Gospels are the religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious scribes who had risen to authority. And we, we hear that if you've been in the church all your life, you're like, oh, that's the bad guy. They're the bad guys, right? Right? Pharisees, bad guys. But here's, here's the problem. They weren't always the bad guys. They started as the good guys. If you know Israel's history... Hundreds of years earlier, 700 and 600 years earlier, they were brought into captivity. Why? Because they disobeyed the law. They broke God's law and God brought judgment on them and they were taken to Assyria and and Babylon and all these places. And so when they finally got back in the land, the leaders, the religious leaders, in an effort to not let that happen again, they came up with these traditions, these oral traditions written down in what's called the Mishnah and the Talmud. It's about 15 volumes in the, if you translate them into English, right? So it's, it's a huge commentary on the law. And what this taught the people of Israel to do was not just what to, it taught them what to do, not how to think. So you didn't have to worry about how much water can I carry on the Sabbath? Well, they'll tell you. And how much work can I do? And what classifies as work? And all these rules, rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And what they were doing is they were playing a fence around the law. You've heard that phrase. So here's the law. Here's the line. You can't cross the line. So we don't want you to cross the line, but we don't even really want you to get near the line. So we're going to put a fence away from the line so you don't even get near the line so we don't break the law so we don't get out of the land. The intent was good. We don't want to, we don't, we want to do this again. But it became something altogether, and the intent was missed. And we do this all the time. Parents do this, right? So I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. And so when I was growing up, you know, your parents said this, don't put your finger in the socket. Put your finger in the socket, bad news, right? And that, they left it there because my generation, it was like, okay, I've told you, if you do it, it's on you. Of course, we all did it. Bzz, okay, we learned, learned a lesson. And then comes the millennial generation. And so we didn't want them to experience that. So we said, don't put your finger in the socket. And so to keep them from doing that, we had put those little plastic things in there. Now you can't do it, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's millennials. Then there's Gen Z. And Gen Z, we don't just have the little plastic things in there anymore. We have ones that twist. It's like a security. And there's like a fingerprint passcode to get through it. And then you get a box on top. And then if you get within three feet, there's an alarm that goes off and shuts the power down in the entire house. Right? Because Gen Z, they, we, we don't even want them to get close. We, right? 
And, and, and what happens now is if someone comes over to your house and you're just a, a kind of a, a boomer, Gen X, or you're like, you don't have things in your plugs, well, you're a bad parent because you don't have the five, five code alarm on your plugs. And it's become a rule that good parents do all these things and it's missed the entire intent, which is they're not gonna kill themselves. So they get a little shock, it's good for them. It happened to all of us. That's the intent. But we've gone so far now, and now we've got rules upon rules, and what's happening in their days is, is Jesus is saying, no, let's get back to the intent. I just don't want you to shock yourself. And they're like, no, 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 you want everyone to electrocute yourself because you don't do the rules. You don't have the alarms. You don't have everything else. And there's this tension, and the point is Jesus is trying to bring it back to the intent, right? He's bringing it back to the intent, and he's going to show the correct view of what the, what the purpose of the law is, and not just the law by application, the Old Testament, and for us now, the New Testament. What's the point? Because the tendency for us in the church is this. We either go the way of the Pharisee. Yeah, rules, 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 rules. You watch anything over a G-rated movie, you're, you're in sin. And we create this law that, oh, I can't believe you guys went and saw Boba Fett. You watched the book of Boba Fett? I absolutely do watch the book of Boba Fett. You're, you're sinful because, you know, that's made by Disney. And we have all these rules and then we get legalistic. That's one swing of the church. The other swing is we're under grace. It doesn't matter what we do. We're antinomian, anti-law. Doesn't matter. And, and what we're going to see is Jesus is going to land not on either of those extremes. He's going to show the intent, right? He's going to show the intent. So let's see what he says. Verse 17 again. Don't think that I've come. Why does he have to say that? Because someone's clearly thinking that. All right? Don't think I've come to abolish. Why is he saying that? Because people are already early in his ministry accusing him. You came to contradict Moses. And his words, the law and the prophets, it's an idiom, a Hebrew idiom that just means the Old Testament. Okay, it's a summary of the entire Bible, right? The law and the prophets, that's, that's Old Testament for us. They didn't have Old Testament, New Testament then. So he said, don't think I came to abolish, to annul, to, to replace even, right? That's, that's not why I am here, right? Y'all think I'm against Abraham. Y'all think I'm against Moses. Y'all think I'm against Isaiah. If they were here, they would be amening me right now. I didn't come to replace or abolish. He uses that word twice. I've come to what? Fulfill. I've come to accomplish, right? That's why I'm here. And here's the first thing that Jesus teaches us of how he looks at the scripture. What is the Old Testament specifically and the new by way of application? What is, what is his view of it? That Jesus fulfills it. That he accomplishes it. You say, how? I could go weeks. Let me just give you a five minute over, overview. He fulfills it in that ultimately the entire thing is about him. The Old Testament, the New Testament. This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think reading the Bible, keeping the Bible, that's how you, that's how you get to heaven. He says, no, no, these bear witness. These testify of me. The entire story, the entire narrative of the Bible from the beginning to the end is what? Is a, is a big rescue mission from God for his creation who was made in his image, who, re, who rebelled and who now are his enemy. And it's the story of how God redeemed and is rescuing. And throughout the entire Old Testament, he is pointing to the one and the way in which he would do that. So he leaves all these signposts, all these prophecies that point to who? To the Lord Jesus. Starting in Genesis 3, the very first prophecy of the Bible, after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, what? That the seed of a woman would one day come and he would crush the head of a serpent. And then you go a few chapters later, you have this man named Abram who was an idolater living in, in Haran. And he says, in you, 
All the nations of the world are going to be blessed. How? Later on, he's going to say, through your son, Isaac, this blessed son, I will bring about all this blessing. And then we find that Isaac has twins. We looked at this last year, Jacob and Esau. This, the younger, Jacob, whose name means liar, his name is changed to what? Israel, right? And he, through him, everyone's going to be blessed. And then we go down to his fourth kid, which is unusual. Usually it would be the first kid, but it's the fourth kid, Judah, is going to be the one through the blessing. And then we find out later, it's going to be through a man named David, the root of Jesse, is going to be the one who brings the blessing. And we're going to find out that he's going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. We're going to see in Micah 5 that he was born in Bethlehem. We see that he went down to Egypt. We see that he does miracles. We saw that he would be crucified in Psalm 22, that he would be mocked, that his clothes would be uh, cast for lots, that he would be buried in the grave of a rich man, that he would, Psalm 16, be resurrected. And you, I don't even have time to go through all the prophecies, but it's like the Old Testament is like, look, this, how do you miss this? I've been saying this for all this time. This is the one who is going to rescue and redeem. It's all about me. It's all about me. And that's what he's saying. But not just the prophecies, the images, the types. There's all sorts of images in the Old Testament that point to Christ. In the, again, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God goes and he covers them. How does he do it? He kills an animal and God himself covers them with the animal who died in their place so that they would be covered. Their shame would be covered. He makes the first kill. There's atonement for sin. A few chapters later, you have Cain and Abel, the two, bro the two brothers, right? They both bring offerings to God. One offering is accepted. One is not accepted. Which one's accepted? The blood sacrifice because there's atonement. Which one's rejected? The works of his hand. I did the best I could. I made the best tomatoes, God. Here it is. Your good works aren't enough. I need the blood. Then you have the ark and Noah. And right, it's a picture of, of Jesus. There's one door to the ark and God closes that door himself. And how are they saved from judgment? They're not saved by the ark. They're saved by faith to get in the ark because it's never rained. God says, it's gonna rain. What's rain? Never seen it. Just trust me. I want you to trust me and get in this ark and I'm gonna close it. It's a picture that God is one way to salvation. His name is Jesus. And you go, through, continue throughout Genesis 22. Here's Abraham with his son, Isaac, the promised son. And he says, I want you to kill your only son. So Abraham takes him. And, and, and his son Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? For a sacrifice, where is it? He says, God will provide the lamb. And they get up, and as soon as, as Abraham's about to sacrifice his only son, God stops him and provides what? He doesn't provide actually a lamb. He provides a ram as a substitute. Why? Because the lamb still had 2,000 years till he was going to show up. The sacrifice was provided. Right? Speaking of lambs, the Passover, it points to Jesus. The sacrificial system, it points to Jesus. Guys like Joseph, who were rejected by his brothers, they go down to the Gentiles, and then they are exalted to the second most highest position. Who's that sound like? Jesus. Guys like Ruth and Boaz. Boaz redeems a Gentile wife, makes him his bride. Picture of the church. The sacrificial systems, the high priest, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the serpent that is lifted up so that everyone who looks at him and lives, we talked about it at Easter, it all points to Jesus. And that's what he's saying. It's fulfilled in me. On and on. In the words of Willy Wonka, it's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. If you see it, right? And it, but it's not just it's all about him. 
Yes, that's, that's just one aspect of how he fulfills it. Here's another one. He fulfills it because he's the only one who ever kept the entire law perfectly. Moses wrote it. He didn't even keep it. He wrote the commandment, thou shalt not murder. What did Moses do? Murdered. David, the greatest king Israel ever had, the, the, the one who the Messiah comes through, he couldn't keep the adultery one, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, she says she even needs a savior. No one kept the law perfectly except for one. He kept all the commandments. He loved God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength at all times. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Why? Because he fulfills the law. So at his crucifixion, Pilate's like, I can't find anything wrong with him. The Roman centurion, after Jesus died, said, surely this man was innocent. He's the only one who kept and fulfilled the law. But not only that, he fulfills it also because he brings us, and this is where the text goes, back to its original intent, right? This is the intent of the law, right? This is what it meant. This is, you, you guys love the, the letter of the law. I'm showing you the spirit of the law. And that's a huge difference because he's gonna tell the Pharisees, you tithe your mint, you pick up a coin and you're like, oh, there's a quarter. Well, I gotta, I gotta tithe 2.5 cents now. You're tithing your spice, spice rack, you strain the gnat, but then you go and you, you, you reject your parents when they need you and you ignore the weightier issues of the law. You're following the, the letter, but not the spirit. It's the difference to this. Imagine, and this is not anybody in this church, but imagine you have two children and you say to these two children, I want you to clean your room. Right? And they know what that means. So one child goes up, cleans the room. The other child goes up and cleans the room. And you come and inspect because you know as a parent that is your job, right? Because if you say, did you clean your room? They're going to say yes, but you have to inspect. So you go up in the one child's room and you see that it's kind of something's been done, but there's a pile of clothes there. And so you say, what's that pile? Well, that's my dirty pile. Well, what's that pile? Well, that's my clean pile. You say, well, why... You know, why is there water bottles everywhere? Well, I'm into recycling and I'm just saving them to recycle. Why is there dirt? There's still some dirt on the floor over there. Yeah, but the vacuum wasn't in my room, so I couldn't do it. You know, it's just down the hall, right? You could have gone down the hall, but, and, and your bathroom, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like it's clean. Yeah, well, I share the bathroom with, with my sibling and I didn't know where the line was. Where do I, which part's mine to clean and which part's theirs to clean? And so I just figured I wouldn't touch it because I don't want to cross their, you know, that, that sink. It's a half sink of mine, half, I don't know what sink is mine. But it's clean. See, that, that's, the, that's the letter of the law. But the other child, you go in and the bed's made. You're like, Wow. And it's been vacuumed, even though they had to go downstairs to get the vacuum. And they even got the ceiling fan and they dusted the ceiling fan. And they used Windex on the window, all of it. And the toilet's clean and the clothes are all picked up. And you're like, where is that child? Does that exist? Does that child live in this world? But which one do you want? The, the one who understands the spirit. I just want, I want to get to the heart of what it is to clean my room. Right? Not the letter of the law. The spirit of the law. It's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is the spirit of the law. This is the intent. My intent is to please the Father. The letter of the law is I just want to get it done just enough so I can say I did it. But you miss it entirely. And Jesus is bringing them back to the heart of the matter. Because like the psalmist says, God doesn't delight in sacrifice. In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted. 
But you, you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. The scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will. That's the spirit of the law, to delight to do the will of God. Your law is not some piece of paper. It's in my heart. And so what Jesus is doing, he's bringing it back to the heart of the matter, which is what we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks. You say, you've heard it said, you should not commit murder. Let me tell you what that's really about. That's the heart of the matter. And that's what, that's how Jesus fulfills. So what he's saying is, don't think I've come to get rid. Don't think I've come to abolish. Don't think I have a low view of the Bible. No one has a higher view. No one than me, is what he's saying. He's saying, well, well how? Look what he says. Truly I say to you, and when he says, Jesus is going to say, truly, truly, or truly, I say to you, 30-ish times in this book. And that's his way of saying, hey, listen up. This is important. It's literally, it's the Greek is amen. We say that at the end of prayer. He says, I want you to get this. So hear it, right? Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished, until it is fulfilled. When God wants to put an exclamation point on something, he compares it to the natural order of things. So in like Jeremiah, when he says, how committed am I to the people of Israel? Let me tell you, right? When the heavens and the moon and the stars start to fall away, then you'll know that I've rejected my people Israel, right? So he's, he's being dramatic for a point to show you, look, this is how big it is. And that's what he does say. How committed am I to the, to the word of God? He says, the universe will shred itself before the word of God falls apart. That's how committed I am to the scripture. That's what Jesus is saying. So he says, not a iota and a dot will pass from the law. Yeah, you know, what is that all about? Okay, this is very, you know, first century Hebrew. You have some language. So I made a little slide. It's not super creative. So just bear with me. All right, I was a PE major, not an art major. But here's what he's saying. An iota is a reference to the Hebrew letter yod. That's on the left there. See it? It looks like a little comma. It is the smallest Hebrew letter. It's the Y. So in Yahweh, right? You have Yod, hate, Vav, hate, real short. It's just Yah, Yah. But it's the smallest letter, just a little boop, little dot, little comma, right? The dot is a reference. It's the Greek word Korea. It's reference. Okay, the difference between these two Hebrew letters, the resh and the dalet. The resh is on the left. That's the ur sound. Dalet is the D sound in Hebrew. See, the, the only difference in these two letters is see that little, little, little bump on the right side there? That's the difference. That's a dot. Right? You wouldn't even hardly recognize. It's a difference on an O, a capital O, and a capital Q. What is it? That little boop, that little, that little line. That's a dot. It's the smallest little thing. Get Jesus' point. I know that's a little Hebrew, Greek, and you're like, I don't care. Okay, get it. But what he's saying is this. Down to the dotted I and the crossed T, to the littlest stroke of the pen, every single word will come true. It will happen. It's not just my teaching on the, the intent of the law. Not one iota, not one little boop will pass away. It's all true. It is Jesus' second view of the scripture is perfect. Every word of God proves true. It is good. It's perfect. Not one word will not be accomplished. This is what theologians call fancy word, fancy words, verbal plenary inspiration. You can Google that later. All right, this is what we learn in seminary. We pay big bucks to learn big words that no one cares about. Here's what that means. Every single word in the scripture, it was God breathed. Down to plural singular, 
down to personal pronouns, down to even the tenses of the verbs are inspired by God on purpose. In fact, Jesus is going to argue later in this, in this book for the very tenses of the verbs to be inspired by God. And so he says this to the Pharisees, the Sadducees actually, who deny the resurrection. They're, they're asking a question that's a trick question. And so he, he tries to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He's not the, it didn't say I was the God. He says, I am. The idea is this, I am right now because Abraham is alive because the resurrection is true. He's arguing for the tense of the verbs to be significant. He is right now the God of the living, not of the dead. Right? That's Jesus' view of the scripture, every word. So whatever he can be accused of, he cannot be accused of irreverence to the word of God. He has a higher view possible than anybody else. He is more committed to any of us. And here's the point for us. Because I know in, in the church, there's a lot of discussions and I had this professor and all this. I, I don't know if I, I, I'm good with Jesus, but I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I don't know if I can trust him. And here's what I would ask you. Can you trust Jesus? Can you trust Jesus? Because his view of the Bible is it was absolutely true down to every jot and every tittle, right? Down to the smallest letter, down to the every doop, doop. Everything is true. And this is why we have a high view of the scripture. We don't worship the Bible. We do not worship this book. We worship the God who gave us this book. But we do have a high view of it, that this is our final authority. And if this says it, then we're going to believe it. That's where we start. That's the S in our specs, right? Our, our core values, that scripture, that we put ourselves under the authority of the scripture. And I know there's all sorts of questions. Well, how do I know that this is, you know, again, I had a professor and, you know, I read this and what about all the translations and what about all the errors and all the manuscripts and what about all the contradictions in the Bible? First of all, all the quote contradictions, if you look at whatever that contradiction is in the context, it is very easily understood what the main intent was. Sometimes one gospel says, well, there's two blind men. One says one. That's because one gospel writer is focusing on the one and not the two. But there is no errors and contradictions in the Bible. You study it in its context, you understand what it is. As far as the variance in all the manuscripts and all the, oh, there's all these different, it is true. There is variance in the manuscripts. But here's what you need to know. We have 25,000-ish manuscripts of the Bible in existence now. And all the variants are, are 99.9% of them are, are spelling errors or you looked at a word and you skipped a word. It's because we have so much evidence, so many manuscripts, we know what the original said. We were like, oh, yeah, he missed that word because if you were looking at this, here's, here's what the, the scribes were copying. Just so you know, I'll give you an example. This is a picture of Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Sinaiticus written about 350 A.D., Right. It is the earliest full entire copy of, of the Greek Bible. They translated the Old Testament and New Testament to Greek. Actually, I picked this one because specifically I had to go through the website archives. The bottom right section right there is the section we're studying today. Some, most of us wouldn't be able to recognize that because you can hardly see it, but I thought that was cool. Anyway, but this is, this is what they copied. Notice it's all capital letters. There's no spacing. There's no... There's no uh, commas or whatever. So when you're a scribe, you're, you're copying this and you remove your eye. Sometimes your eye jumps to the next line by accident. Sometimes you miss a word. And that's where all our variants come from. And it's very evident because we have all the manuscripts in the world, right? It actually, to be a scribe was so meticulous, you had to study for like 30 years before you could do it, right? So, and if somebody before you made a little error, 
What are you doing? You're copying his error, which is why there's variants in different things. Right? But no variant in these, these manuscripts ever affects any doctrine. It's usually like, oh, they le- it's usually Jesus Christ and they left out the Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ and they left out the Lord or it's a, there's a, uh, you know, little, one little letter missing or it's just things like that. So when you hear that stuff, it's, it's people who are just trying to, to get you and they don't really know what they're talking about. There's a whole art and science of this called textual criticism. It's for very smart people uh, that like to do things that no one really understands and I'm not one of them, but I did a little bit of it in college. So, um, but understand you can trust the manuscripts because God has preserved his word. Here's another one for you. Here's a cool thing. This is uh, the, the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, looks exciting, right? Okay. Uh, here's, here's what's cool about this. This was discovered in 1947. A little shepherd boy's throwing rocks into a cave. He hears a ksh. He goes in and they find all these scrolls that were in there that they, they previously didn't have. Until 1947, the earliest copy of the Old Testament we had, the earliest copy of the Old Testament Hebrew was 900 AD, which is pretty old, but it wasn't, I mean, you're talking a thousand years from, from the time it was written until they discovered these. And then they go in and they found this Isaiah scroll is dated 150 BC. So a thousand years earlier, right? And so what they did is they compared the manuscript that they had from 900 AD and the one they had from 150 BC and they put them on top of each other. And you know what they found? They were identical. They were identical, right? With few little spelling errors here and there, but nothing was left out. That's how God has preserved his word. And you need to know that that what you hold in your hand, God has preserved it so that you would know him. And he's done it in a supernatural way so that you could know what he has said, right? And I can go into all sorts of other things, the prophecies that were true, not just the messianic prophecies. God told Abraham, your people are gonna be in Egypt for 400 years, it happened. God told them they're gonna go away for 70 years to Babylon, it happened. God prophesied the name of a king 200 years before he was even born, named Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. He was born, he was a king, his name was Cyrus, and on and on and on. So everything he said before has happened, everything he said will still happen, will happen. It's the way it is. And that's not to mention the unified message of the Bible, 66 different books, multiple authors over 1,500 years, different backgrounds, shepherds and, and fishermen and rabbis and just normal dudes. And, and, and all of them talk about the same thing. And they talk, they, don't, they talk about some pretty controversial issues, the destiny of man, God, eternal life, and they all agree. You can't get your family to agree on where we're going to lunch after church. You, you can't get doctors to agree. You take medical journals for 1,500 years. Just pick five medical journals written over the last 1,500 years and you try to apply some of the principles they taught just in, you know, 12, 1,300 AD, you're gonna kill somebody you apply these things. There's gonna be leeches all over you. Why? Because they're fallen. These people all agree. Why? Because God supernaturally preserved his word. He, God, he spoke through them, preserving uh, and, and giving us his perfect word. Not to mention the changed lives that the scripture has, has done time and time again for thousands of years. Because when you're reading it, it's not just you're understanding it, it's understanding you. It's reading you. It's a living and active book. And Jesus viewed it as perfect, as true, down to the smallest letter, Right? And so what you hold in your hand, you need to have confidence. This is the word of God. Doesn't matter what everyone else in the world says, the world, the world ebbs and flows, what is truth, what is not truth. The grass withers, the flower falls off. 
but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Endure forever. And so when you hear someone say, well, Jesus said this, but Paul said this, understand that is a misunderstanding of the word of God. Jesus and Paul agree because the same spirit that spoke through Jesus speaks through Paul, speaks through John, speaks through Amos, speaks through Moses, speaks through Daniel, speaks through David, speaks through Hosea, speaks through Zephaniah, speaks through Haggai, speaks through them all. It's the same spirit and it's perfect and true and you can trust what God has said. And if you say, well, I don't know if I do, here's, here's the warning. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom? It comes down to this. Have a high view of the scripture. Have a high view of what God said. Because with the Pharisees, this is an attack on the Pharisees. What they're doing is saying, well, this rule is important and this one's not. This law is higher up than this law is not. We say, oh, that's bad. We do the same thing. And the church Southern church, we are guilty of hammering all the big sins. Homosexuality, drunkenness, blah, 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 fill in the blank, right? We, we'll hammer those, but let's not talk about gluttony. Let's not talk about greed and envy. Those are the lesser sins, right? It's the same thing. Sin, sin. Gluttony, homosexuality, sin. Now, maybe the ramifications are, are different, but sin. So we can't play the same game as them, Right? He says, no, if, if you have a high view of what God has said, then it's all wrong or right, right? And so this is why also the brother of Jesus says, don't many of you become teachers? Because if you're going to teach, you better be sure that what you're teaching is true. You don't wanna say, well, this is not, it is not this is my interpretation, right? Just look, there's only one interpretation, right? You can't all be right. That's why you come to the text humbly but it's just all, there's one interpretation, many applications. And so the goal is, what's the, what's, what did the text mean? And 99.9% of the time, God is very clear. He doesn't stutter on things he wants to be clear on. Now, other you know, differences in eschatology and, and subtle, subtle theological issues, yeah. And we'll figure out that we're right in the end. That's fine. But it, it, the point is, when God wants to be clear, he's clear. And so it's, oh, it says this, but don't, it doesn't really mean that. When you hear that, be careful. If you say that, be careful. Because it says greatness in the kingdom is related to your view of what God has said. Do you honor what God has said? Right? So, so Jesus said, on the fulfillment of the law, the law is good, it is perfect. And one more thing. And this will be the shocking part of the sermon for them. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And for them, they would be like, and what are we doing here? Because these are the most righteous guys in their mind in the world. These are the guys that keep the law perfectly. These are the righteous people. And if they don't have a shot, then how do me, how do I have a shot? I mean, how good do you have to be then to get into heaven? That's a great question to ask, right? If, if they're the best they got and they're not good enough, then how, how good do I have to be? And this reveals the point of the scripture, especially the Old Testament that it was a tutor, it was a guide. It was, as our translations say, a guardian that kept you safe until what? Until Jesus came. Because the point of the law is to show you that you can't keep the law so that you would need grace, so that you would cry out for help, which is why the sermon starts where? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You got to recognize, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so when you realize you can't do it, then you put your faith in the one who fulfilled the law, who could do it, the one who was your lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, the one who was resurrected and conquered death. And you put your faith in him as your substitute, as your Lord and your God, and he did it for you. And now you're in Christ. So if this is you and this is Christ and you put your faith in Christ, now you are in Christ. And God doesn't see you as separate and sinful. He sees you as in Christ. That's the point of the law. It's to get you to Christ. It's to get you to Jesus, that you would put your faith in him. That's what Galatians says, right? And so, and then he's gonna say, now that you're in Christ, you can keep the intent of the law. You can be the kid who's dusting the fan. You can be the kid who's windexing. Why? Because you're not worried about the letter, you're worried about the spirit. You just wanna please the God who lavished you with grace. That's what you wanna do. And that's what the point of the law is now. So now we say, okay, can I eat barbecue? Can I eat shrimp? Absolutely, not only because the Bible says in Acts 10, kill and eat right? But because it doesn't have anything to do, the ceremonial law is all fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the moral law is still there. And that's what he's going to teach us about the next couple weeks. Don't murder. Yes, that's good. But let me tell you about anger. Don't lust. I mean, don't commit adultery. Yeah, but let me tell you what the heart of that is. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about oaths. Let's talk about justice. Let's talk about love. He says, because I'm under grace, now I can do those things because I want to please the one. And this is what, this is not in my notes and this is not on the slides, but let me read Real quick, Titus chapter two to you. This is what grace does. This is the point. Got to find it in my big letter Bible for my blind self. Here we go. It's only one page in this Bible. Here we go. Titus two says this. This is what grace does. This is the point. This is the point of the scripture. This is the point of the law. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And then what it does, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace teaches us to please the one who lavished grace on us. And it's not about a law, it's not about a rule. It's about, is this pleasing? It's pleasing to dust the fans, kids, trust me. He says, you're, you're, gonna, look for, you're gonna look for opportunities to please God. Why? Because you've been lavished with grace. Right? That's the point. God did not give us a Bible, this holy book, so that we could just revere it. Oh, put it on a, a pedestal and oh. He gave us this book to bring us into fellowship with him so that you would know him. That's why he gave it. So when you read it, don't read it just to, oh, I want to get smart. I want to learn about it. Yeah, that's fine. But it's to know the heart of God so that you could be taught by grace to live lives that are pleasing to him. And then you can ask the question, well, how can a man, young man keep his way pure? And David answers, by keeping according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, so it may not sin against thee. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of the, the wicked and the sinful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. You want to throw off the shackles of your porn, of your greed, of your gossip, of your envy, of your gluttony? Meditate on God's word, read God's word, love God's word, memorize God's word, hide it in your heart so that he may not, you may not sit against him. There's real, legitimate, supernatural power that the spirit uses the word of God to change your life. It, it is, it's a book that is living and active. Right? It's one of the two weapons we have to fight against the enemies of our soul. Prayer and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So read it. Put your little ESV, you know, the ESV app now. I don't know if you rec- has, has uh, a, 
audible feature with with an Irish lady reading it. It's great. You can have Irish Bible reading on your way to to school or on your way to work in the morning. You can write the book of Philippians out and and put it on your your mirror so that you see it while you're all, you know, getting your, your stuff done, ladies, whatever. Men, when you're drinking your coffee, Pull your phone out and and read a chapter. They got Bible reading plans. Read it to your kids, right? Just put it in your mind. Renew your mind with truth so that you're not conformed to this world. Study it, love it. There's real power in God's word. And then throw yourself into simple, faith-driven obedience. I don't understand it, but I'm gonna trust it, right? We don't wanna be hearers of the word only. We will be doers of the word who are blessed. What have you got to lose? Your sin? Your sin doesn't love you. Your savior loves you, right? Your savior loves you and he's given you access to him. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And he's never gonna take you in a place uh, that's gonna do harm. It's gonna be for your good, right? That's why he's given you the word. So how did Jesus feed the scripture? It's perfect. Every word will prove true. He fulfills it because it points you back to him. That's what it's about. That's what ultimately it's about. Now, there's a lot more to that, but that's the simplest view. It's perfect. He fulfills it and it points you back to him. That's what I want us to grasp. We're gonna um, remember this morning uh, that and and Jesus fulfilling the, the law and Jesus fulfilling the scripture by remembering the table and I think it's a fitting week to celebrate. And so I'll ask those who are handing out to go ahead and do so. You can come on down. And, and just as you prepare your hearts, number one, this is uh, what we as, the ch- as a church do for those who have put their faith in Christ. You have come to faith in Christ. You are a Christian. You've turned from your sin and, and you've put your faith in Jesus, the Messiah, who lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died on the cross for your sins and he rose again. And if you have, have done that, then this is an invitation to you to celebrate this, this table. If you haven't done that, we, we, don't, we don't want you to, to, to partake because it, it's, a, it's not meaningful for you because you haven't understood that. We would, we would say, hey, let's have a conversation about what Jesus has done for you because this is something uh, that the believer in Christ has as a remembrance of him. And so as they hand out, don't feel any pressure, like, I don't know, and I, then, then let it pass. There's no judgment, no judgment at all. Uh, this is something for us to remember that Christ fulfilled the law for us, that he died as a substitute, as the Lamb of God who took away from sin rules. You guys can come on up and start handing it out. So what I, I want us to just take a few moments, kind of quiet of your heart, um, and just thank God for what he's done for you, for fulfilling the law, for uh, dying in your stead, for uh, for forgiving you of your sins. And if, if there's something you need to confess, this is the time to do it. Repent of it. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Doesn't even matter if it was just this morning. He is faithful and just to forgive you. So spend some time just in the quiet of your heart, searching your heart, asking God to show you if there's any, any sinful way in you. And if it is, if you bring something up, repent of it, turn from it, trust that Christ is sufficient. And I will lead us just in a few moments after we just kind of quietly do that and partaking in this table together. So go ahead and do that.